Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. ABMP is proud to sponsor the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. All massage therapists and body workers can access free ABMP resources and information on the coronavirus and the massage profession at abmp.com forward slash COVID-19, including sample release forms, PPE guides, and a special issue of Massage and Body Work magazine where Till and I are frequent contributors. For more information, check out the ABMP podcast available at abmp.com forward slash podcasts or wherever you prefer to listen. So good afternoon, Till. Good to talk to you again today. And we have a great guest with us today. Who's, who's joining us today? Mark Bishop is with us today. He is the most patient guest we've ever had. This has got to be take three or four through all of our technical problems. Mark, thanks for being here today. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. You are a physiotherapist with more than 30 years of clinical and research experience in the area of rehabilitation of musculoskeletal pain disorders. Your work has focused predominantly on the mechanisms underpinning the efficacy and effectiveness of conservative interventions for pain, especially in manual therapy and exercise. You're the current faculty member in the Department of Physical Therapy with affiliations in the Center for Pain Research and Behavioral Health and the Pain Research Intervention Center of Excellence at the University of Florida. I met you at the San Diego Pain Summit last year, 2019, where you were saying some pretty interesting things about contextual facts, about expectations, about patient-client preferences. And I wanted to dive into that more because that's an area that perks up my ears and gets me interested. What else would you like our listeners to know about you and your background and your interests? Sure, thanks, Till. I think um, something that's probably pertinent for the listeners is that I personally identify as a manual therapist. Um, that came from my my entry-level training, and I don't know if Angel would agree, but what I took away from that degree was uh, a very strong preference for manual differential diagnosis and treatment. Um, and I'd say I have always been pretty fascinated with that as a, a process um, and had the opportunity to go to Canada to learn some different styles of manual therapy. Uh, I'm very maintenance focused in my joint bias training in Australia um, and in Canada I had the chance to learn some of the muscle energy techniques, a slightly different version of things that I was doing at uh, in Australia and then when I came to the US in the early 90s um, the people I with whom I interacted were heavily influenced by the osteopathic myofascial release theories and I had not experienced any of that and learned some of those processes but the thing that fascinated me clinically or frustrated, depending on your perspective, was the fact that there was still groups of people who I was not able to help. And part that partly motivated the return to start studying these types of, of things. Like what sort of factors could I learn about or study to help answer this question for myself 
about which techniques I should use for which people and when I should apply those. And we started out studying um, particularly spinal manipulation uh, when I first began studying manual therapies. And uh, we had the great good fortune to be collaborating with a group of clinical and health psychologists. And uh, still makes me laugh to think about um, the director of the, the center looking at me and another physical therapist asking us why we thought the shoulder should be any different from let's say the, the back or the knee. From his perspective, musculoskeletal pain was musculoskeletal pain and the anatomic location was not important. And that was a bit confronting to my worldview, but uh, it did get us thinking a, a little bit differently about how we were approaching some of our studies. And a lot of the studies we were doing at that time, I'm gonna say were peripherally focused. We were looking at things like uh, withdrawal reflexes and some quantitative sensory things. And it was the psychologists who really encouraged us to think a little bit differently about psychological factors in particular. And at that time, I would say I had a very dualistic view of this, that there were psychological factors and that there were neurophysiological factors. And um, the psychologists asked me, I remember, why I thought that they were separate. You know, if you, if you thought anything, part of your brain depolarized, so that had to be neurophysiology. And um, that did get us thinking a little bit about this. Uh, and so... You're saying that the thought itself is a neurophysiological phenomenon. Absolutely. That if something is happening in the cortex, that's as neurophysiological as anything that we were measuring as far as nerve function or reflexes or anything like that. And the reframe you're describing is a shift from being, say, you said peripherally focused, but focused on the body per se, to including what was happening in the brain and uh, in a non-dualistic way, it sounds like. I want to hear about that. Yeah, absolutely. So if, if I describe it like this, saying that we were studying sensory input at the periphery and, and measuring things at the periphery, but what we were actually interested in is what the person was telling us. And for you to tell me something, you get that sensory input, you process it in the cortex. You're comparing the input to other previous inputs. You're looking at some feedback loops through different parts of the brain. You're processing it in areas all before you actually have to tell me about it. I guess to get completely in there, you've got to activate the speech motor centers and you've got to do all these things for you to tell me something. So it has to be a complete system to get the output. And that, that was a big change for us, just looking at what was happening at that, the foot or the back, as far as reflexes were going, to now really beginning to believe that the, the cortical aspects absolutely influenced everything that people were telling us. For example, in the context of expectation, if I, if I talk about, let's say, an expectation that something bad might happen. Maybe fear or anxiety about 
an intervention or in our case, the, the pain we're actually going to cause potentially. Maybe this treatment will hurt. Maybe this treatment will hurt. That if you have that, your whole system, the, the gain in the system gets elevated because of the anxiety or, or fear and how that processes everywhere. And you're more likely after you get a stimulus to tell me that it hurts. Now, after you've experienced it and you've thought about it, if I give you that stimulus again at a different time and your anxiety about it has gone down, your response will likely be different even though the stimulus did not change. And we use a lot of these standard stimuli, usually something very, very hot. Um, and so we're able to control the stimulus and see the variability in what people are telling us based on what they happen to be thinking and what some other things are going on. Wait a minute. So you're, you're using very, very hot things on your clients and you're asking them well, how this much is, it hurts? Well, this is in the research context. Some, ah. some of the studies do include, include pay, people we've recruited from the clinic. Yes. Um, but these are in, this is in a uh, research context, not in a uh, clinical context. Okay. I'd say that so you're saying I, I get predisposed by my expectations. If I think it's going to hurt, um, you said the gain is raised, which if you've ever played electric guitar, you know what that mm -hmm. is. Otherwise, it means you're more sensitive. You're more likely to experience that as pain or report that as pain. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. Okay. And the opposite is true, that if you're expecting something to be good, you're more likely to report either less pain or benefit from it. Uh, even though that the stimulus isn't different test to test, there's something about how you're thinking about it that modifies how you process that stimulus and then what you say about it. And so when we get into the context of patient expectations for any sort of provider interaction, there's some, there's some global expectations. Um, for example, people coming to see providers, usually if they have chosen to see that provider themselves, they often have an expectation that this is going to help me. I will get benefits. And we've actually, when we've measured clinical samples, seen that people have generally very high expectations that things are going to improve when they've actually chosen to go and see that provider. And so you have gen these general expectations. Actually, you even have some more general expectations. And the story that we tell is that's like, did I find parking? Was the person at the front desk the way I expected? Could I get an appointment when I wanted? Does Till's office have what I would expect from someone of his skill? And so these are some background expectations. There's expectations for benefit from the treatment in general. And then it starts to get more and more focused to say people have specific expectations of the technique that you're about to apply. And each of those expectations can influence what people are thinking about is happening to them. And then let's say Till's come in with neck pain. He's, expect he's expecting the clinic to look a certain way. That meets his expectations. He's generally expecting benefit from being to, get, uh, to seek treatment for his neck. And then he receives a technique that he has high expectations is going to help him. Chances are that he is going to report feeling better or a, a good outcome than a, someone who comes to see... 
the provider, they don't like the place, they didn't like the provider, they're not expecting much from treatment, and then I do an intervention that is not what they expect to help them. Even if it's the same intervention for the same condition, they may report or usually often report worse outcomes compared to the person with high expectations. Now you've said, you've used two things here. Yeah, and Whitney, you got something to throw in here too, but you, you're talking both about uh, what I expect, but also what I prefer. Yes, um, they're, they're, they're a little bit different. Yeah. When we actually ask people these questions, people can expect a lot of benefit from a treatment that they don't prefer. So mm -hmm. lots of people, you know, some people prefer, I'm going to put this on the PTs, if they've worked with um, folks with back or neck pain, people prefer maybe to get some heat, get some passive treatment, maybe that type of thing but they expect exercise and manual therapy to help. Okay. If that makes yep. sense. Yeah. I'm curious too, you know, I read in one of your other papers that was looking at some of the, the impacts of manual therapy on, on pain. Uh, there seems to be, especially in a lot of the research, a focus on the biomechanical effects of some of these manual therapy interventions because they're a little bit easier to measure. And I'm curious, you know, what you've run into in, in terms of the, some of the, the significant challenges and difficulties of trying to measure something like expectation of benefit and its subsequent outcome of improving uh, the outcomes of those types of treatments for you know, the, the difficulty of making those uh, accurate measurements that people can, can sort of hang their hat on. Yes, yeah, so there's a couple of things to unpack in there. And, um, you know, the, the biomechanical theories that I, I learned about how the joint mobilizations were, were helping, some of those have not panned out exactly as were theorized as people are measuring things. For example, mm -hmm. What I recall, we'll see if Gwen Jell responds to this, what I recall is being taught that I was specifically mobilizing a segment of the, say, cervical or lumbar spine, but what is seen is that we know that it's multiple segments. So if you're mobilizing the spine, there's multiple segments moving at once. If I do a thrust technique, that force is transmitted across a lot of um, segments, and so, we're not quite as specific as we thought we were. Other challenges include the way we use force between people is, is quite different, that um, I might be using a very different force from you, Whitney, for example, even though we're doing um, what could be potentially the same technique. And so there's been a lot of work looking at the biomechanics that hasn't supported the outcomes is quite as much as people theorize that there are some right. there are some sort of exceptions uh, julie fritz for example has some collaborators in canada and they've they've built a very um very sophisticated way of measuring spinal stiffness and it turns out that that has some relationship to the outcome for some of the manual therapy for the lumbar spine I don't have the same 
you know, sensor capacity is the robotic spinal stif stiffness device, but that, that is something biomechanical that does seem to be related. Yeah, well, I think in one of those other papers, you had alluded to the idea that this made you think a lot more about the role of some of these other factors, some of these neuros, uh, neurological factors um, and other psychological factors that you're mentioning here as being far more prominent than we may have originally thought in, in the beneficial outcomes then. Is that correct? It, it is. And I would say part of that was working in this group, research group with some collaborators in the physical therapy world. We have the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. And a few of the people in our research group were fellows. We, and we had a, um, someone from a chiropractic background who was part of our research group. We all did techniques differently. Mm -hmm. But our out outcomes were very, very similar. So when people have actually looked at comparing the, I think that last time I looked, there was 270 different named manual therapy philosophies that when these, when philosophies and strategies are compared broadly head to head, there does not seem to be one particular philosophy that outclasses out the others as far as outcomes which made us think that we'd all gone through the, the rigorous training to master our particular, we'll call it brand or, or area of manual therapy. And we'd all been taught quite robustly that, you know, this is how it has to be and this is where things should go. But if people are all doing it differently for the same condition and getting similar outcomes, Potentially, there's something else at work as well as whatever stress we're putting in the tissue. Because don't get me wrong, we do stress the tissues, but there has to be something else that is helping contribute to the outcomes. And that, that's really what we began to focus on saying, what were the common things across these practitioners who... You know, I, I won't speak for the others, but I think I'm pretty good at what I, what I do. And I suspect that uh, some of the others also believe very strongly in themselves. And so we're looking at the, what commonalities across practitioners might help explain how we can have so many varied approaches with similar outcomes for the same conditions. Okay, so you're saying if, it's, if it isn't the method, if the methods don't seem to be sorting themselves out in terms of some being more effective than others. What are the practitioners bringing to the equation that might be part of that yes. difference? Yes. So that, that was a, a big part of it. Um, you know, and I know there's efforts to subgroup. It looks like some particular parts of different manual therapy disciplines work well for smaller subgroups, but on, on mass, when we look broadly across management strategies, there has to be this part that's, from the practitioner, but we started by focusing on the person in pain. Like what are the people in pain bringing to the, the interaction? Um, we've spent a lot more time recently thinking about what you and I bring to the interaction and how that impacts things as well. But what the patient's bringing, they're bringing their beliefs, they're bringing their expectations. As you said before, they're bringing preferences. And it turns out that at least the, some of the work we've done seems to suggest that the expectation that someone has before we even start is a stronger predictor of what they'll tell you six months later than 
which treatment they actually received, which certainly got us thinking a lot. That what the, what the client or patient thinks before they even come to you has the stronger correlation to how they're doing six months later. What kinds of things, what do you mean? What kinds of things would they be thinking about? Yeah, and so this is where the psychometricians on listening to the podcast will get a little bit angsty, but uh, we simply... I think we, we have a lot of those, by the way. So. <laughs> yeah, we simply asked people before they started treatment about their general expectation for recovery. Do you expect you will be completely recovered in six months? Do you expect you'll be moderately recovered in six months? And the people who said that they would be completely recovered in six months before we'd done anything were the ones that had the largest change in outcome. All right. So the people that said they expected to recover had the largest change in outcome. Yes, sir. Um, so that's a very general expectation that has got nothing to do with what we actually did. That's got everything to do with what you think before you even get treatment. And this is back to, you probably don't come to see me unless you expect something good from me. And so in those people who are expecting the complete recovery by coming to see the PTs in this study, they reported the best recovery. So uh, another question, again, back to sort of research methodologies and how we measure some of these things, because I, this, to me, this is really fascinating about um, trying to figure out how we're determining uh, beneficial outcomes, you know, uh, f back to this issue of looking at specific physiological effects of a treatment, if it were that easy to measure those kinds of uh, specific physiological parameters of a, of a treatment as uh, when you talk about expectations, let's say somebody has expectations that either a massage or a manipulation or a chiropractic treatment is going to help them. Um, if those treatments are relatively uh, consistent from practitioner to practitioner because they're specifically a manual or mechanical intervention, that seems a lot easier to evaluate then what we're now learning, which is that in many of these uh, interventions and clinical scenarios, the personal interaction between the client or patient and therapist is a huge aspect of what makes that successful. And that seems like that's particularly challenging or difficult to uh, isolate and then study. So how, how do you all sort of uh, look at that piece of it? Yes, there's a, a couple of instruments that seem to be pretty good for measuring uh, one of the pieces you're talking about, which is alliance. So our provider-client alliance with each other. Um, but there's no, and so I, I haven't looked to see if there's been a particular tool that's been recommended, but I know there's been quite a few systematic reviews of all the different ways that people would have measured expectation and, and each just, sorry just to clarify by instrument you mean like a questionnaire like a survey yes sir yep. yes. So like a, a survey or something that the person can fill out um, and so the the measuring of expectations is done many many different ways and to the best of my knowledge there's not a standard recommendation saying okay this is the most effective way to measure general expectations, specific expectations, and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, but uh, 
you know, I think um, one of the things we suggest to um, clinicians that with whom we interact is, you know, ne not necessarily how you measure it, just make sure you measure it and include it in your management process. Yeah. Okay, so what about the role of client preferences? You've done some interesting uh, publication on that, like your 2013 paper, Patient Expectations of Benefit. We'll go ahead and link that in the show notes. You showed a, a several interesting things, one of them being, if I read it right, that patients ranked massage therapy pretty highly in terms of their expectation of benefit from that current episode of neck pain. Did I get that right? And was that a surprise? Did you expect that? Um, I, I don't think we were surprised. I think we were surprised that manual therapy and exercise was so robustly represented in the expectations. I think it matched our hypotheses pretty well that people wanted manual therapy for their neck pain. Um, and so the two manual therapies, I think we had manipulation and massage therapy. And, and so it made sense to us that conceptually people would kind of put the two of those together. Those were your, I'm looking at the chart now. Those were the two, the two uh, uh, modalities that got the highest level of agreement about uh, the intervention in helping them with this episode of, of uh, pain, neck pain. Massage and manipulation. Can you say, for people who don't know what manipulation would be, can you say something what that is? Yes. Uh, manipulation, when I'm using that term, is um, some people may be more familiar with thrust joint techniques or high-velocity, low-amplitude joint techniques, most often associated with osteopathic and chiropractic um, providers. Yep. So those, those were the two modalities out of the, whatever that is, eight or nine that you studied where people expected the most benefit. Yeah, I'd say the thing that surprised us is we were kind of expecting uh, some of the more passive modalities to be rated a bit higher. Um, you know, the fact that people thought that exercise was going to be better than rest was, I guess, surprising and quite encouraging because... You know, in the study, we, we were offering manual therapy and exercise as our treatment modalities. So it kind of worked that people expected those to be effective. What, so one of your takeaways, again, I'm, I'm remembering, you're, if I'm remembering right from San Diego, one of, your, one of the things that sparked you on was trying to match clients and patients with uh, a modality based on their expectations and then based on the practitioner preferences as well. Am I remembering that right? You are, you are. And I have a colleague, Joel Bialowski, who has been doing some work there that, that's not completed, but uh, so doing some research to see if our theory actually works out. But um, we conceptualize it as a, as a buffet. And in that buffet is options under manual therapy. There's options when you go through the menu for exercise and other things. And, and the way we think about it is if the best treatment for neck pain, let's say, is manual therapy and exercise, 
then it behooves me potentially to say, till it looks like manual therapy and exercise are, are really going to be the most effective ways to treat this, but we, we can do different types of manual therapy. And so I'm going to tell you about some of the types that I do really well, and then you get to pick which one. And then you're, say, saying, yep. you're saying there's a strong research rationale for giving the patient a choice of modalities, giving a menu of options that were, and letting them vote on which modality or method you're going to use. Yeah, if, if for me personally, if there's no difference between me doing mobilization for your neck or manipulation for your neck or a muscle energy technique for your neck, if I explain how each of those work to you, and I personally think the outcomes will probably be similar, then it's no harm for you to say, you know what, as the patient, what I want is this one. Okay. Why don't, why don't then we just ask our clients what they want and why don't we just do it? Is there, is there any downside to that at all? Yeah. Um, I, I think the, the, context around that i'll get to a different part of that question but if in my in my opinion there is a best way to treat you then part of the education would be to say okay this is the the best options these people who get these treatment programs seem to recover the fastest and have the best outcomes and so this is what i recommend that we are going to do today and so that's a little bit different than your question, which is the second part. If the patient doesn't want to do anything that I have suggested and say, well, you know what? The only thing that I expect to help this is to have a hot pack and some ultrasound because last time my neck was sore, what I got was a hot pack and ultrasound and my neck got much better. And so the way that, that we have thought about that is to include that with the other package and say, you know what, I'm, uh, that sounds like a great idea. I'm very happy to, to finish with those. Once we get through a couple of things up front, then we'll make sure we finish with the hot pack and the ultrasound. But the, when I tell this sort of story to some people, one of the challenges with this is surrounds billing and charges. And so it's a little bit easier for me to advocate for that because my practice is pro bono at the university and our studies are not dependent on certain um, regulatory restrictions about how to charge and bill. And so I, I can do that, but I understand some clinicians uh, push back a little bit and say, well, that's unethical. I can't bill them for that. And that, that's, a, that's a slightly different conversation. But if you take the billing part out of it, if I don't think that there's going to be any detriment, then certainly I would include that. The other part I would say, though, is do it on a time contingent basis so that the person's not expecting this other part of treatment to be the primary focus for how many times they come and say, yeah, we're very happy to include that. I think that's a great way to finish for the first two, maybe three sessions. We'll, and we'll reassess and see where we are then. 
All right. What if it's something that uh, I don't particularly believe in as the practitioner or, or enjoy doing or don't think helps? Is there still benefit in me doing it just because they do? Well, it gets to the provider stuff that even with, so even everyone who thinks they're a great actor will convey that they don't believe very strongly in what they're doing. Um, I haven't done any of those studies, but I've read a couple where uh, clients and, and patients are able to pick out which providers are giving particularly in research studies, the treatment, the real treatment versus a placebo treatment, just because of the way the person's body language and interacting and, and stuff like that. So if you don't believe in it, then it's going to be, I think, hard to get that extra piece, that benefit. But if the patient believes it, they will still get that benefit from their belief. They just won't get the added bonus of your belief, positivity, confidence, and those type of things. So I'm curious to hear your opinion on this. Uh, I don't think this was, I didn't see this picked up at all in, in any of your other research, but in something like the massage therapy profession, which is a vast majority of our audience that we're, we're talking with, if we're talking about expectations for benefit from that treatment, and in uh, in that particular, um, let's call it a modality or approach of, of massage. Massage might be administered by uh, a physiotherapist with uh, a great deal of academic education, and a high level of credentials, DPT or something like that. It could also be administered by uh, an individual with just a very basic level of massage training um, who ha has very little formal academic training. Might you see... Uh, expectations from the client or patient change when they recognize who their practitioner is and they don't, uh, I, I'm assuming that if you have a great deal of confidence in the um, skill level, the demonstrated or perceived skill level, let's say, of the practitioner that you're working with, and maybe you have never met this person before and that that, change, that environment changes when you meet them and you see, while well, they don't have uh, a lot of significant training, could that change the outcomes of your, your perception of, of effectiveness of your treatment at that point? Uh, it, it may, um, indirectly. One of the things that you're talking about is, uh, I think, related in, within therapeutic alliance, one of the elements that that people have identified as building therapeutic alliance is the trust in the provider and the mm -hmm. perceived, as you said, skill level of the provider. And so potentially, yes, if you walk into a place and the person's got their academic training and their clinical certifications and the pictures of the happy people on the wall who've signed with uh, thank you for a great job and all that type of stuff that helps build the, the kind of um, confidence that the client has mm -hmm. in you as a provider. I don't know. I don't know enough about it to give you a, an answer about the degree qualifications. I think that whether you're, um, someone from the physical therapy background or massage therapy or uh, osteopathy, for example, it, it's the same, potentially the same environment, 
to set up, uh, and that would be the the healing context, the therapeutic environment yeah. part of this. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking more, you know, in terms of talking about the, the degree and the academic qualifications, more about just the environment that gets set up there, not specifically those uh, particular educational programs, but just the, the client or patient's perception of this individual's skill and capability levels that might be demonstrated by some of those things. Absolutely. And um, I know there's a couple of groups in the US that have begun doing this and doing it very well. But uh, one of the things is the first, with, uh, the first person with whom the client interacts is your expectation ambassador. Yeah. Whoever that person interacts the first time has a has great potential to, to help set this context in motion. Mm -hmm. uh, Whitney, yep, we've got an appointment at the time that works. You're going to see Till. You'll love Till. He's such a funny guy. He does great work. Everyone loves seeing him. That even just those sort of comments can begin the person on the other end of the phone saying, oh, good, good. I got to see Till. He's the best in the clinic. This is going to be great. Yeah. Same with if friends or, um, I don't have to be friends, but if people are uh, giving the good reports, these all help build that pre-contact expectation. Then once you get there, the therapeutic context has been shown to really influence alliance and, and client confidence and that type of thing. Uh, the um, trust and confidence that the patient client has in the provider. It's yeah. Great. So these are all, um, go ahead until I was just going to say, these are all things that um, we question. Uh, um, I think uh, the, how we go about training people appropriately for, developing those kinds of things. There's, a, I think, a much greater emphasis needed in some of our training programs on the role of some of these factors, which I think are, are significantly underemphasized in terms of their, their contribution to the outcomes. Yeah, I would agree. I think the metaphor that, that works for me is that I have never given treatment in a blacked out room, dressed all in black with a mask on, mm -hmm. and the client unconscious. Yeah. If the mechanical effects of treatment were all that mattered, then doing treatment that way would work just as well as what we're talking about. So you're saying you've never given a treatment where you tried to eliminate the context because a treatment in a dark room with you dressed in black is an interesting context in and of itself. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Very true. The masked man, there can be a lot of power in that. You know? Well, it's akin to the saying there's always weather. Mm -hmm. There's always a context you're saying. There's always some set of factors that create, say, expectations or preferences or associations yeah, on I both of our parts. Some great examples in the placebo literature from Benedetti's group. They, um, the original design is quite old, and it's called, uh, I think, open injection. And in those studies, uh, someone who is in pain in a hospital um, randomized to two groups. One group has uh, a health professional work, walk up in a white coat. The person in the bed can see the injection going into the bag and you get a great response after the injection. When you give the same injection 
from behind the screen so the person doesn't know when it's administered. In some drugs used for pain, not all, but in some drugs used for pain, you actually eliminate the effectiveness. So the effectiveness of that particular medication was all context. Mm -hmm. um, so it's an incredibly powerful part of the treatments that we have. Um, the sociologists and uh, I think it's Vergesi is a physician who studied some of this calling it the bedside ritual or the therapeutic ritual mm -hmm. as part of setting the context for healing to occur. Yeah. And what about the argument that uh, what you're talking about, the contextual effects, et cetera, are, are subjective only. Uh, are they, and does that even matter? Well, so I'm going to go back to whatever you thought changed your neurophysiology. So subjective just means to people that you thought it. I think that's what people mean when they say subjective. You thought it and told me about it. But I can measure that and I can measure what you tell me quite accurately and repeatably. So it's not a measurement issue. I think it's people's this is opinion. This is an opinion. I think it's people's bias back to this dualism that if you thought about it and told me that can't be objective because, you know, I didn't measure whatever it is, but you can measure these verbal responses very accurately and you can measure everything the way you would. It just happens to be that what you're measuring is uh, the end result of a cortical process. Okay. So to your point, I don't think it matters. If I'm doing a treatment that seems to activate your endogenous capacity to modulate your own physiology and increase the inhibitory dampening in your spinal cord, good. Once again, though, I don't have to negotiate billing and uh, regulatory things associated with that. Uh, as, yeah, those things aside, there's also the argument that people are coming to us for subjective reasons. And so maybe the subjective realm is the right target for our outcomes as well. Yes, yes. Um, what's the, I can't remember that saying. I think at uh, the pain summit we were at, uh, one of the slides was when the person is complaining about pain, the treatment should focus on pain. Okay. Well, okay. So then that makes me think that there's a portion of our listeners who see clients or patients whose fo focus may not be pain, maybe general self-care, relaxation, stress relief. Do you see any reason these things wouldn't apply there as well? I can tell you they do apply. Um, in fact, in exercise studies, expectation of benefit predicts performance improvement confidence in the coach and expect and sort of uh, alliance with the coach predicts performance improvement. And so the same things are at play. And this is an example of, I think what people would truly think as peripheral physiology, your ability to run faster is influenced by your confidence in the training program and your expectation that you will run faster. If you know, you're not expecting, and what they think the mechanism is that if I'm expecting this to work, um, when they get people exercising at consistent effort 
outputs and that type of thing that the people with high expectations of benefit report lower exertion than people who don't expect it to help. If I don't expect it to help, it's that old adage about if your head's not in the game, you're not putting in the effort, I think, is what it makes me think about. But uh, so exercise, for sure. I see no reason that if I go to see you expecting benefit in the forms of relaxation or stress relief, that I will experience more relaxation and stress relief, unless, you know, you're using a very hot thing for treatment. So do you think there are specific things that we could focus on? Uh, for example, Till and I are both educators. Uh, and uh, are there specific things that we could focus on in educational programs, both in our field and across multiple different professions, to enhance the um, benefits of, of this piece of expectation for therapeutic outcomes? Like what, what kinds of things, I know it's a, certainly it's a soft skill and, and much more difficult to kind of, to put in granular terms, but what kinds of things we might really be able to um, focus on to improve those, those outcomes? I think at the, at the simplest level, going back, so I, I apologize, I didn't research any of the training for other professions, but going back to, say, for example, therapeutic communication, which used to be a like standard class in every PT program everywhere. And then, like you said, that got removed as people wanted more physiology and pharmacology yeah. and radiology. What are we going to get rid of? Oh, it's just communication. We'll eliminate that. And what I think is learning how to communicate well is of imperative performance. I'd probably also suggest things that uh, elements of of motivational interviewing, not necessarily the whole formal training because that, that's very intense, but you know, making sure people are asking open-ended questions and actually caring. I think one thing that came to mind recently is I ran into uh, someone I'd seen as a patient, I don't know, 20 years ago in a parking lot and she was we're catching up and she was complaining about her shoulder and how she was doing all this exercise and doing all this manual therapy. It just wasn't getting better. And I literally, so I listened to her. This is what I remember. I listened to her and then said, you know what? I have to go. I need you to just do a couple of these catch the rain exercises, feel it back there. Just work on that for a week and we can talk later. And then a week later, I, Grant called her and um, she said, oh, I feel great. I have never felt so good. My shoulder's better. I mean, and when I asked her, she said I was the first person who actually let her tell, her, tell me about her frustrations with what was going on and yeah. suggest an alternative. Um, and so I, I, I'm not saying that I'm awesome because of that, but I think just that episode of listening to her and saying, okay, yeah, I hear you're really frustrated. There's lots of different ways to do this. How about we just try this alternative? And that was enough for her to, I think. Yeah, well, it's a great, great example. And Whitney, your question is great too, because it has a lot of implications for, say, entry-level training 
for sure. And the pressure you, you mentioned, Mark, about how those things are often the first things to get cut, the alliance skills, the listening skills, the communication skills. But I'm thinking even at the, say, post-grad level or people that are out there in the field working for a while, we tend to think, oh, yeah, I got that. I know about that stuff. I'm a natural. I've been doing this for how many X decades. There's probably a whole lot of room for us to get better in terms of understanding the alliance and the contextual uh, possibilities and the expectations involved, too. I think so. I'm going to be PT specific again. I think there's a group of physical therapists who were trained in the, there was an era where we, we're not going to ask about pain, we're going to focus on function. And so there's a group, there's a group of PTs from the late 90s who probably may not have been trained to think about these type of things in the same way. Um, and I, I think also this is all opinion. So the other thing that I, I think is interacting with providers when we're talking about this is many people are still getting a very traditional explanation of pain as a symptom. People are talking to me about the gate theory and, and stuff like that. And saying, you know, it's a little bit, little bit more complex and there's lots of things that play, not just your A alpha and A deltas coming in and your C fibers and top down inhibition. It, it is a little bit more complex. And I, there has been a move that I've liked where people are beginning to understand a little bit more of the complexity of not only pain, the symptom, but pain as a, a as a disease, because uh, once you get into working with people with chronic pain, there's lots of the hallmarks that of disease states mm -hmm. in that situation, not mm -hmm. just the symptom. Chronic pain as a disease uh, in the chronic level and pain as an experience on anyone, different than say a symptom. There's a yeah. whole person uh, experience to say more than something that just happens at the periphery or in the body. Well, what, uh, one more question I'll make sure I get in before we wrap it up. What about COVID? What, how might that be, uh, well, something that would influence the contextual factors, but also the expectations, or how uh, does that, uh, how do we, do you think we need to be thinking about the rituals or the ways that ambassadors step in bringing people into our practice if we're seeing clients? Any thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I would think that, um, being very re reassuring, the ambassador saying, you know what, uh, do you have any concerns about coming to see us? Anything about COVID? Let me tell you about the protocols. So we're deep cleaning everything in between people. And when you go and see Till, he will, be, he will probably have a face shield on and a mask. It, will that be okay? And just kind of interacting with people, I think, to, to give them the before they get there, before they're lying on the table with their mask and you walk in in full PPE, I think setting the stage that this is, this is what treatment would actually look like. Um, and then I, my thought is that practitioners and providers may need to also be interacting with patients ahead of time, answering questions. Yeah. There's nothing's changed in what we're actually delivering. I just need to let you know that how we deliver it is just going to look a little bit different than if you were here before COVID. You'll see that we're separating people and 
all that type of thing. So people's expectation of what it's going to look like matches what they experience when they get there. You're saying we might need to be a little more proactive and a little more detail-oriented uh, around setting the expectations and making sure those are outlined clearly ahead of time. Well, Whitney, anything else you want to make sure we have a chance to ask? No, I think we got into some some fascinating territory here, and I hope we maybe can have an opportunity to, to dig into some more of it later on. But I think there's uh, some some really significant things to think about in terms of going beyond the usual pictures of what it is that we think makes our work effective because these uh, these concepts and ideas around uh, expectation and the, some of the other factors I think are are sometimes undervalued in a lot of the the approaches and perspectives that we have. So, uh, Mark, just thank you so much for sharing your research uh, and your perspective on, on this with us here. Absolutely. And Mark, is there anything you want to leave us with? Any key thoughts or key points that you want? You think we should be keeping in mind? I, if I was going to summarize, I'd say I think it's in, important to think about what the person is expecting and to find out if they have specific expectations about a, a treatment or types of treatment. And then if you are able, and it does not interfere with your treatment plan, consider including elements that patients expect to help uh, into that decision-making process when you're planning out the management strategy. I think engaging, there's some patients that don't want to be involved and just want you to tell, but unless you ask someone about that, you may not know what their um, expectation for being included, their expectation for interventions, all those things. So I think asking people about what they expect is useful to help you plan your approach. That could be as simple as saying, is there anything that you want to make sure we cover today? Anything you want to make sure that I do, for example? Yes, That sir. kind of question? Absolutely. Excellent. Excellent advice. Well, Mark, where can people find out more about you and your work? I'd say the simplest place would be the... Uh, phhp.ufl.edu would be where our, you can find links to our lab there. Um, that's probably the simplest place for information. Periodically, I'm on Twitter, at PhysioBish. Great. We'll put all this in the show notes too. Yes, and our the Center for Pain Research and Behavioral Health is at painlab.org. Okay, fantastic. Well, thanks again for joining us, Mark, and thanks for the patience with the setup, but I'm glad we got to pick your brain on a couple of these really interesting oh, topics. Great. Thank you for the invitation. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. Yeah, good. And we would like to say a <clears throat> thank you to our sponsors. And uh, we also have uh, this show is also being sponsored by Books of Discovery. We have a brief uh, message from Andrew Beal, the author of Trail Guide to the Body. Books of Discovery might be best known for producing Trail Guide to the Body, but we're also a whole lot more. We bring you the clinical learning tools you need to inform your intentional body work. Check out our kinesiology, pathology, and A&P texts. They not only build the foundation upon which great educators like Till and Whitney rely, but will also support you through your entire career. Books of Discovery is proud to support the thinking practitioner, 
and are offering a 15% discount when a listener enters thinking at the booksadiscovery.com checkout page. Enjoy the show. And if you heard uh, any of us uh, drop a reference to something you'd like to learn a little bit more about, remember to visit our sites, check out all the studies and references that you heard about today, as well as uh, full transcripts for the show. Till, where can people find out uh, information from you and uh, information on the presentation here? Information on our site is at advanced-trainings.com. How about you, Whitney? Where do they get it through you? They can uh, get it through us also over at the academyofclinicalmassage.com. And if you will remember, send us questions that you have or input on other things that you'd like to hear us talking about uh, to info at thethinkingpractitioner.com. And you can look for us on social. Where do people find you there on social, Till? Just my name, at Till Luca. How about you? Uh, Also, same thing for uh, at Whitlow on uh, Twitter and also on social under my name as well. Follow us on Spotify, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. Tell a friend. Thanks, Whitney. Thanks, Mark. We'll see you, everybody. That sounds great. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks again, Mark and everybody.